everyone. I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Today is the final episode of my second season of this little project. Summer is upon us, and my family is making up for travel time lost to COVID. We are so excited and honored that next week, Chris will be presenting an award at the NHL Postseason Awards Ceremony in Tampa, and the four of us will be there dressed in our best. After that, we are so looking forward to spending time with family and friends we haven't seen in so long. Chris was diagnosed with ALS in June 2019. That means we are in a big grief anniversary season. June 10th marked three years since an EMG technician in Calgary told us he thought Chris had, quote, some form of motor neuron disease. One week later, Chris was diagnosed. For me, June 10th feels like the anniversary of his diagnosis. That was the day the bottom dropped out of my world, when every single thing I believed and held onto cracked and shifted so seismically there was no way I could ever put it back together again in the same way. Since that moment, everything has been different. It's been hard, and it's been beautiful and surprising and sad and complicated and filled with fear and worry and love and hope. This year, on June 10th, I found myself feeling quite emotional. I sent Chris this text after he went to work for the day. I remember this day three years ago so vividly. Everything, the sunshine, the beautiful flowers, feeling completely betrayed by the world coming to life outside while a man in an empty white room told me my husband was dying. I remember the shock biking to school to get the kids and wondering how I would keep from crying, not being able to eat for days, crumbling to the floor after putting the kids to bed that night, sobbing on the couch while we talked about what life would be like when you were gone, what I would do, how we would keep going, how impossible the idea of going on without you seemed. Still seems. I remember all of it in photo frames in my mind. I don't know what life looks like next year on this day. The truth I have come to know is that I never did. What I know is that today you are here. Today I kissed you goodbye and hugged you good morning. Today you drove to work to do your job the same as you were doing it three years ago. Today you will take Cohen for a haircut. Tonight you will laugh with your friends. I will watch you do all of it, marvel at all of it, at you, my living, breathing miracle. Your presence isn't just enough, Chris. It's everything. In this episode, Chris and I answer some questions that people sent us on Twitter and Instagram. I sat across from Chris while we recorded this last night and felt just so profoundly grateful for all of the conversations we still get to have. He's still here. He's still talking and walking. Thank you for caring about my husband and my family enough to listen to our stories and be curious about what this life is like for us. Thank you for giving me another reason to record Chris talking with me. I treasure these episodes. So without further ado, these are questions you have about our story. A quick reminder that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me. From finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member for as little as $5 a month. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Hey. Good to see you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we just came in here from the living room. (laughs) I'm a captive participant. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for joining me again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I think it's a marital obligation, though. Is it a marital obligation? Mm-hmm. Well, this is our, well, my, this is not, I always say like our on the podcast, like there's somebody else doing it. <laughs> I'm the only one doing it. Uh, this is the last episode of the season. Made it through a whole season, only a couple hiccups when you were in the hospital, <laughs> things like that. That's right. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Okay. So we're going to do a Q&A episode now. Haven't really done anything to prepare for this, so I'm just going to go into my questions. I asked on Instagram and on social media for people to ask questions. So I'm going to go and read some of the questions, and we're just going to answer them, whether they're directed to both of us or 
maybe just Chris. I said no questions about Flames player contracts allowed. (laughs) (laughs) Chris is very busy right now with those things. So we should all feel honored that he's sitting here talking to me. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so let's see. The first question that I wanted to start with was, I think a really good one. And I think that for people who listen to this podcast, who are familiar um, with our story, Chris has familial ALS, um, which means that it was passed down from his dad in this case. Um, I had a question from Hillary on Instagram and she asked, what advice would you have for someone who is gene positive, but has no symptoms? So that means that in Chris's case, the gene that is causing his ALS is a mutated SOD1 gene. And so this person is asking uh, if they've had a ge- that they've had a genetic test, their genetic test shows that they have this mutation. If you have this mutation, you pretty much without a doubt will develop ALS at some point in your life. So they're asking advice that they have for someone who has the has the mutation, but has no symptoms yet. Well, that's a terrifying situation. Yeah. By itself, because there's a feeling of inevitability to it. Uh, I don't look at it, though, as a... Once past the acceptance stage, as an opportunity for a head start. Mm -hmm. That head start is identifying the experts and... By that, the doctors who are specialists in that particular field, so in this case, really less, uh, identifying those doctors, contacting them, finding out if there is any proactive clinical trial, which there is in the case of the gene type that I have, which has come along since I was diagnosed, right. uh, and if there's not a proactive solution, uh, finding out the reactive solution is, if that day comes when uh, a symptom presents itself. But there's nothing linear about this disease and lots of diseases. And so the presence of a positive test does not guarantee near-term full of one sentence. Right, and nobody knows one of the, you know, this disease is very mysterious. And one of the mysteries is why it starts when it starts. Chris's dad was, how old was your dad when he became symptomatic? He was 50, sorry, yeah. 67. Yeah. 67. And Chris was 37. So there's no rhyme or reason that they can tell at this point. I'm sure there is. They just don't know. They just haven't been able to find out why this becomes active when it becomes active. But what Chris is speaking to, um, so Chris is, as we've mentioned many times, specific type of ALS is caused by the mutated SOD1 gene. The clinical trial that Chris has been in since July of 2019, we are at what number of lumbar puncture now? 40 on the nose. Okay. 40 lumbar punctures since then. Once a month, he gets this medicine. Um, so that medicine is called Tofersin from a company called Biogen, and it is um, an ASO, an antisense oligonucleotide. Well done. Thank you very much. So it basically works to sort of turn down that SOD1. Um, and we know that it's working because they collect uh, Chris's cerebral spinal fluid and they test it. And um, we think that it's lowering it or the results suggest in, across the board that it's lowering it by about 30%. Now, it shows, the study research has shown that the faster, the sooner you can get diagnosed and get on this drug, the better. And so our feeling in Chris's family, the feeling in Chris's family has always sort of been that there was no reason to find out whether you had this genetic mutation unless there was an action you could take. And now there is an action you can take. And that's that this drug tofersin is being used in another clinical trial, um, started um, in conjunction with Biogen and the University of Miami, where they are actually finding enrolling patients who have SOD1. They know they have the mutation, but they're pre-symptomatic, meaning they don't have any ALS symptoms. They have found something, a neurofilament in your blood that actually um, increases 
in the 12 months before you become symptomatic, which is a huge, this finding this biomarker is a huge thing for ALS um, across the board, specifically for SOD1. Uh, what it means is that these patients who have this mutation can be enrolled in the trial. They get their blood tested monthly. When that neurofilament goes up, they go into this active part of the trial, which says, okay, now you're 12 months out or about from having symptoms and you're going to start on this medicine. And all the evidence that we've seen in Chris's trial suggests that the sooner the better. And that's why we think Chris is doing so well. He was diagnosed quickly. He was in the trial a month after he was diagnosed. We believe based on his lack of progression that he was on the drug and not the placebo and all of those things. So um, now there is an action to take if you have SOD1 um, in your family. And that's a really, really exciting thing. So um, whereas before I would have probably said, don't get the test because there's a lot of other implications that a genetic counselor could take you through about why not to get the test for life insurance and a whole host of other things. Your emotional state. Yeah. I mean, yes. And um, now I would say get the test because now there's an action you can take. Um, and, a, and I think a potentially very um, beneficial action. That is a hard, hard position to be in um, to sort of know what you're staring at that old question, like that you used to ask each other when you were kids, like, well, would you ever want to know how you were going to die? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Those things present themselves in time. And, um, but now that there's an action, I, I do think it's a different story. Okay. So this one was a question, um, that I, that was asked around the time that, uh, the flames ended their playoff run. So after the Oilers beat the flames in the second round, um, the Oilers coach Jay Woodcroft got up to the mic for his post-game press conference and somebody asked him a question and he sort of respectfully said, um, I'll get to your question. I just really wanted to um, send a message of support to my friend Chris Snow. And it was a very like lovely, um, very nice thing to do. And this person was asking how you are, because I think the comment was something like, Chris, he's, Chris is going through something right now. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got several questions asking if you were okay, worried that you maybe had had some progression that we hadn't talked about yet because of that. So no. No, the, the ironic thing is that I had COVID and <laughs> I was at the game and I was sitting here on the couch watching that instead of being there. Yes. But uh, for starters, that was a really... Uh, kind thing yes. for change to do and necessary. But he's he's a thinker. He's thoughtful. He thinks ahead. Um, he tries to do the right thing in those situations. And uh, the lack of necessity in that and then actually doing it meant a great deal. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I had driven home from Edmonton the two days before, I think, because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was with the team on the road of Edmonton and working as usual. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I feel that my body today is largely the same as it was a year ago. We talk a lot, you and I, of what my perceptions mm -hmm. on changes, and oftentimes they relate to my voice. Yeah. Because I feel like it's not quite as good. And... I do think that my facial and jaw and inside, my whole anatomy is not quite the same, mm -hmm. even relative to a year ago. I think that that has slightly altered my voice. But in the sense of losing it or slurring, there, I don't have those fears or issues at this time. Yeah. And so, no, I just like catching with my son and daughter, uh, got out of my bicycle last week to see if I can still do that and there's no reason to think I can't do these things it's just such a uh, helpful reinforcement to me to actually do those things that potentially I hadn't done since last summer mm -hmm. um, okay here's another one from the ALS community are you investigating other drugs like Neurone I think we get asked a lot I think a lot of ALS patients get asked a lot, what are you taking? What are, what supplements are you taking? What are you taking? Um, and I generally don't have a lot to say about this because we are taking Tofersen. <laughs> you are taking Tofersen. I think that almost every patient with ALS 
knowing that there's not a cure, is so desperate for anything. Mm -hmm. And so, and rightfully so, they try everything. Mm -hmm. Anti-inflammatories, uh, any sort of, you know, stem cell treatments, trans, trans, stem cell transplants, mm -hmm. uh, on and on and on. And they chase because they have to chase. Mm -hmm. In our case, we got so lucky of a drug fall into our lap that is making a difference and that doesn't really allow me mm -hmm. to do anything else but I don't desire to do anything else. I have such belief that this is the one thing to do. Um, and I've seen those results, and I feel that this is what I'll do until something that truly is a cure comes along. And if that doesn't happen, I think that I'll have such a slow uh, decline or uh, symptom progression that even just on this I feel really confident that I won't be significantly worse in a few weeks or a month or a year or several years. Yeah, and I end up having sort of the uh, I have two feelings on this. I sometimes think maybe I should be researching more, maybe we should be doing more, maybe we should be taking more supplements, more anti-inflammatories, more things like that. Um, I do believe, and I think most people in the ALS world now think that it will be a, a cocktail of medications ultimately that, you know, unless there is a gene therapy that comes along and is, is very like one and done, um, a true gene therapy. A lot of people call Chris's medicine a gene therapy, but it's not a true gene therapy. Um, and then I also have the other side of the worry spectrum, which is like, well, this is working. And so I don't want anything to get in the way of it. And so what if we tried something and it actually had a negative impact? That's a fear that I have as well. Um, Chris is only on Tofersen for ALS. Um, we've also taken curcumin um, off and on, not for a while. There is a study that suggests that, that curcumin or turmeric can be beneficial. Um, the other medicines that he's on are not for ALS. They are helping him manage things that have happened because of ALS. So he's on an, um, an antacid because I think we've talked on here about all the issues we had. And I've talked on social media about the issues we had late in last year, early this year with, uh, reflux and aspiration. And so we basically figured out that Chris has, um, his stomach has gotten lazy, which seems a bit like counterintuitive because you think that if all you ever have in your stomach is liquid, the liquids would just move through your stomach really quickly. But apparently when your stomach doesn't have any solids to force it to work and to digest and to break down those solids, then your stomach can just sort of sit there with all that liquid in it and it doesn't digest, doesn't empty out as fast as it should. So we were having issues with reflux hours and hours after Chris had eaten and gone to bed four plus hours after he'd eaten, waking up having reflux. So he's on a medication. I call it the champagne medication because it's called Domperidone. <laughs> and that medication helps his stomach um, contract and push that food through faster. And we have found it to be life-changing. Godsend. Yeah. It's, uh, in fact, the most recent aspiration that Chris had. <laughs> he woke up at, I think, two in the morning, kind of like choking on reflux. And I sat up and I was like, Are you I, he had done the medicine that night. I normally grind the pills and dissolve them in water. Um, but you had done it that night. We share that. Oh, we share that. Okay. Fitty, fitty. <laughs> okay. Well. What's the laugh? Nothing, nothing at all. So this night you had done it anyway. And so when you wake, he woke up choking on this reflux and I immediately shot up in bed and I said, did you grind the whole pill? <laughs> and he went downstairs after things had settled down a bit. And sure enough, half that tiny little pill was still in the pill grinder. And it was a real relief to see it. Yes, there. because that meant that we could point to something rather than saying, oh, now the medicine isn't working mm -hmm. anymore. So user error on that part. But otherwise, those are the medications. Really, right? Yeah, and the witch. 
yes, he sleeps on a like a wedge pillow. That that's helped a lot to give him an incline. Oh, and forever we've been doing um, N-acetylcysteine or NAC, which is supposed to help um, with excess mucus because just Chris has issues with that thicker mucus because it doesn't really drain and he can't really swallow it and it just kind of gets stuck there and it impacts his. It's voice. dry here. Yeah, it's really dry here in Calgary, and so we notice actually that his voice, his swallowing, everything is improved when we're in a humid climate. Yeah. And additionally, we've learned that sleeping on your right side is more likely to lead to this aspiration. And the reason, as I understand, is that on your right side, anatomically, your stomach sits above the opening to your esophagus. And so essentially... My stomach is just draining, mm-hmm. and then it sits into my esophagus. And so all three instances of reflux and then aspiration, I woke up on my right side. And with my head, I'd say, low, as opposed to all the way up on top of the mm-hmm. watch pillow. Mm-hmm. And so I do things to create, as a barriers to rolling over. Mm-hmm. How much... In your opinion, has Tofersen slowed down Chris's progression? A ton. Yeah. So That's a ton. A ton. The way that I would explain it is that Chris, Chris's dad and both his uncles died within nine months of being diagnosed. His cousin, Matt, who was 28 years old when he died, died within 18 months of being diagnosed. And we are at three years from diagnosis at this point for Chris and we aren't obviously just talking about being alive. We're talking about um, a very high quality of life. Not to say it's been perfect and not to say we haven't lost things. Definitely Tofersen isn't the magic bullet that we hoped it could be. But the way that it has slowed things down in Chris's body is certainly been remarkable for us. My cousin who was diagnosed in the spring, the year and a half before he died, was in a wheelchair the following winter. Mm-hmm. And when I saw him that summer, so 15, 16 months post-diagnosis, he couldn't move, he couldn't talk, he needed oxygen frequently. The only thing he could do was eat, and not easily. I tried a conversation with him and could not understand a single word. Mm-hmm. And so to be really active physically with no limitations. I can run, I can skate, I can play hockey, baseball. I can do anything my kids want to do. There are adaptations for sure because of my right hand and arm. But I can go on a trip alone Mm -hmm. and occasionally awkwardly ask for shoe ties from hotel staff, which is really awkward. More so, I think, for myself than for them. I know it's really too bad that they don't make shoes without ties. Hmm. That'd be a great invention. It would. Have you seen those? <laughs> we had a playoff game this year, and I was in the box upstairs with two of our assistant GMs and our director of hockey administration. I looked around, and everyone but me had no tie shoes on. No comment. You've been furious. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so here's, I think this is a good one, actually. This is from our friend Brian Coates. How do you think your family's ALS journey would have been different if you were living and working in the United States? I would say not at all. I wouldn't say that. That's not at all true. Why? (laughs) Well, it wouldn't at all be different if we're talking about the trial itself. But all the other parts of it, the parts of like needing going to the ER for aspiration pneumonia, those things don't cost us any money here. My perspective was that it's so different because this is a borderless um, trial treatment and trial. Right. And so the access to this, thankfully, is no different for Canadian or American. And yeah. we've been fortunate to have resources in both countries. Mm-hmm. Throughout this, yeah, I mean, in fact, we could have chosen uh, before there was a before Calgary was a, a site for the trial. We 
could choose any of the sites. Um, we chose Toronto because it made the most sense logistically. But say if there had been, if Seattle had been a site, great. Uh, it's it wasn't. It still isn't that I know of. But if it had been a site, then we could have gone there because the flight would have been shorter and it would have been easier for our travel. Um, but anyway, we the trial. Yeah, the trial is not impacted by borders. Um, you know, you don't pay to be a part of a clinical trial. Uh, so that wouldn't be an issue with, you know, that it has nothing to do with health insurance, the trial portion of it. But, you know, the fact that we have had a decent number of hospital stays and clinic visits and things like that, that obviously we are not paying for out of pocket. Please do not yell at me, Canadians, when I say that <laughs> I'm not going to call healthcare free. I understand. But as having lived the other experience in the U.S. for so long, um, it's pretty remarkable, you know, when Chris was, when Chris had his surgery to get his feeding tube and he walked out of there, obviously, and never saw a, any bill for anything at the hospital. They gave me a ton of supplies to take with me. And then two days later we have, or the day later we had a zoom, you know, sort of tutorial with the people at the home enteral nutrition office here in Calgary. And they said, okay, every month here's the list of the things that you can order and we deliver your supplies right to your door. And it's, that's it. Like, it's amazing. They bring it right to your door. And I'm talking all the formula that we do some blended food too. But if we wanted Chris to just eat formula, then all of his food would be covered by our provincial healthcare, um, along with all of the gravity drip bags, the extension tubes, the syringes, the dressing changes, like everything that you can imagine um, just shows up at our door when we need it. And, you know, his tube changes, which he happens, gets a new tube like every six months. That's also covered. I mean, that is not, and that is not a small thing. No. And I think I take it for granted. Yeah. I think here. Totally. This is a entitlement. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real blessing because you're right. Those, those expenses cause stress, and all this is stressful enough as it is. Mm-hmm. And to have such ease and no cost and um, really helpful and painful the entire process mm-hmm. has yeah. made this journey uh, far, far less complicated, less expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, and I know that the Canadian healthcare system isn't perfect, and we haven't had to test its limits mm-hmm. um, the way that I know other people have, and it doesn't often respond well when you test its limits. I know, but for what we've had to deal with so far, um, you know, I feel very lucky to be in Canada uh, in that regard, specifically in having that universal healthcare, um, and not to say that it's the same. It's provincial healthcare, right? So it's different province to province. In some provinces, with the feeding tube as the example, they su- they give you all your supplies, but you have to pay for your formula. In other provinces, they give you your formula, but you have to pay for your supplies. We are lucky that in Alberta, they supply everything. Um, so, so I, yeah, I, I think it would be it would be different. And I and I think that as you know, I mean, hopefully we don't have to test the limits of the healthcare system, but I do think that. Um, that as as these types of diseases go on for people, that sort of gap between what things are like in the U.S. and what things are in Canada probably only only grows. But I can't speak from experience as, as far as that goes. Okay, here's one for me. Do you worry about your financial future if Chris is unable to keep working? I guess this is for both of us, but I would say specifically this is one that we talk about a lot that I worry about a lot because you'd be surprised to know this podcast doesn't pay the bills. (laughs) Um, And so I have this giant gap in my resume. I had a decent job and a good career before we moved to Canada. And I was, I was surprised by my own want to stay home um, with our kids and glad that I did that, um, that I still do that. But yeah, it's a very scary and real thing to think about how I would become the breadwinner. One of my good friends often talks about how Stephen Hawking did nothing before he left, that he was no one. And then worked for 50 plus years as one of the most brilliant people to ever live despite extreme physical 
plantations. And he always says, you can do that. And so my thought is, I'll do that. And I tell Kelsey not to worry, and she does a lot, and understandably. But I think that, if nothing else, we've shown throughout our lives together that we just find a way. And I tell you all the time that we will find a way. And if you had to work, you would find something and excel because you are talented and capable in just with everything that you do. And those things are a lot of things. And so I don't worry about this. I'd create overconfidence, or, but I think that that's healthy mentally. And if a rainy day comes, I'll figure it out. How do you balance taking care of one another while navigating your ALS journey? That is an excellent question. Mm-hmm. And I'd say it's something we have probably not neglected, but paid less attention to than we should. Mm-hmm. And I say that probably more for myself because you are constantly the caretaker of all. The kids, me, and that does deplete you often. And you don't show it, but it does. And so I think that one of our one of our recent common conversation threads is that mm-hmm. is how to be more connected, more aware of each other's emotional needs, especially me, mm-hmm. aware of yours, because I tend to go through days with what's next, what do we do next? So that's the kids in the morning, that's work, that's the kids in the afternoon and at night. And at 10 o'clock, we're tired. And we can go several ways to books and TV shows and such. And so I think a, a really important focus of mine this hour and beyond is looking out more often for your emotional needs, uh, which is hard. It's hard because I have a lot myself, Um, but I'm trying. Yeah, it is hard. And I think for me, one of the challenges has been connection outside of caregiving, because I think that I can be a bit resentful about like how much I do for you caregiving wise, but that doesn't necessarily feel like connection for you. Like I might be spending a bunch of time researching this new reflux problem we're having or which incline wedge pillow is the best or, or making your food or trying to figure out why your tube site is leaking or, or whatever it is. And I spend a lot of time on those things, but that doesn't like, that feels like work for me feels like caretaking and it feels like giving you my time and energy and effort, but that doesn't like necessarily feel that way to you. Right, because there's some connection yeah. in that process. Yeah. And you do all those things. Like, there's a problem, and then it's solved. <laughs> and I don't necessarily see the process that resulted in that solution. Mm-hmm. And I'm beyond grateful every day. But I guess you don't necessarily feel the fulfillment of that gratitude because it's a Thank you, and then uh, what's next? Yeah, it's hard. And I think that I've had to learn, too, that there need to be boundaries. Like, I, and I participate in it because I um, I like to be in control. I was yawning. I would have said something there. Something <laughs> <laughs> smart-ass. <laughs> um, I like to be in control. And so, you know, I want to do it in, in the same way that I sat up that in the, at 2 in the morning and asked if you ground the whole pill because – it's hard to relinquish control of things that, you know, I want to know are being done the way that I would do them. And, you know, there are things that I've had to say. I think there was one point around the holidays where I was, pre- I was very burnt out. We're, we had the issues with here. We've been in the hospital. It was a lot. The holidays were around that time. It was, it was just a lot. And at one point I just sent you the recipe for the food that I make you. And you went back and you said, I'm going to make my own food now. And I was like, I don't see why you can't. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I had to say this to my therapist the other day, like I am feeling resentful 
because I've never set any boundaries. And that is also my responsibility. You know, you can't be mad at other people for taking what you give them and what you're willing to give them. You have to tell them, I can't keep doing this and then see how they respond. So I've worked toward doing that a little bit more too and saying, you know, like you're saying 50, 50 with the pills, but that's probably just in the last couple of months that you've been doing those things yourself as well. Yeah, I started to feed myself more, started to do things I realized I could do this. Yes. So don't ask. Right. And we did, I think, think for a long time had in our heads, like, oh, I had to be there to syringe feed you. And no, you found a way to do that. It's not actually that complicated. Actually, that solution I realized when you were away. So I was forced to do it. You were with the kids in Medicine Hat, mm-hmm. right after that reflux episode. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there trying to do the syringe and getting on the counter, getting it all over the paper towel, and realized if I started to sink, I couldn't press this against the inside of the sink and wash it off before I do. Mm-hmm. And so I think forcing myself to not ask for help when I don't necessarily need it, mm-hmm. that's it's good for both of us. Yeah, and since realizing that you can do some of these things by yourself, like you know, fill up a feeding tube bag or feed yourself with a... Um, you know, with a syringe, then I have started to, I used to really, my mind would revolve around these increments of like, when do I have to be home to feed you? Mm-hmm. And now I realize there, like I'll go, I'll realize in the evening sometime, like I didn't even think about you eating because you just did it. And you didn't say, are you going to be home to feed me or should I feed myself or whatever? You just did it. So those are things that we've, you know, I think who knows how long we're going to have these things where you can do these things by yourself. And I think it's important to to do you to do it as long as you can to do whatever you can for as long as you can like I posted a video on on TikTok I'm on TikTok now I'm big on TikTok I've had there's so many 15 year old people you <laughs> know who told their parents who told us no, no. Kelsey that Snow you're huge Kelsey Snow is TikTok famous <laughs> it's not really me it's you it's my account but the videos of you or me explaining and one thing you're I you're the director on the yeah. actor one of the things that I have found really different about TikTok as opposed to other social media channels is that people are much more, I think it's because they're younger, much more unaware of what ALS is um, and not afraid to ask about it. And so then I've had a chance to explain it more. And I think that's great. That's a great thing for advocacy. And, and we were talking about the ice bucket challenge and how that was 10 years ago now. Right. And so the people who are 15 now, a little less, let's say seven. Okay. Seven. But the people who are teenagers now, might not remember it at all. And so that getting that, those three letters in your mind, even if you didn't know what it meant, you know, we were suit shopping the other day for Chris and, and this guy, you were in the dressing room and this guy, I went in to help you button the suit pants. Cause especially those latch pants can be hard for you. The ones that have that sliding latch thing. Yeah, it's like a matrix. <laughs> this one had three buttons. I think this pair of pants, mm-hmm. suit pants had three buttons. So I went in to help you, and the guy, I came back out, and the guy said, oh, does he need a hand? And I said, <laughs> well, yeah, he only Literally. has <laughs> I said, well, yeah, he only has one, but that's why I'm here. And then he was like, oh, do you mind me asking you what his condition is? And so, oh, Chris has ALS. And he said, and this is the first time I've ever experienced this in, in person. And he said, well, what's that? And he still didn't really know when I said Lou Gehrig's disease. And he was probably in his 20s, late 20s. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, it was a good opportunity to be able to explain it. But it's just more um, awareness around the fact that not a lot of people don't know what ALS is. Or they might have heard of it, but they don't understand what the disease is. So anyway, back to the TikTok. I post a video of you feeding yourself. And I post a video of you mowing the lawn. And, you know, these are the things, these tiny little things that you don't think about. But, like, you love mowing the lawn. And you want to do that for as long as you can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I power washed some things this weekend. I think that was hard for you because you really like power washing. Well, I could do it. It's just hard on your skin. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Why? It's tiring and you don't need to wear out your muscles and all of that. But so as long as you can do and it's funny the things that you want to do, those sort of chores. But you do like chores. I do. <laughs> Moving on to Twitter questions from our friend Doug. Doug Scott. Hi, Doug. What is a lesson learned or insight gained over the past three years that you realize would have been good to have learned earlier in life and obviously learned in a different way? This is actually a really easy question for me. Good. And it is to 
appreciate the things that your body can do that you so take for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to talk clearly, loud, to insert yourself in a conversation, a bar, at a concert, in a restaurant, uh, to tell a joke, the incident has to be inserted into the conversation flow. Um, those are examples of frustrations I have. Mm -hmm. um, to eat, to taste good food, uh, and to enjoy good food in the company of others. Um, I am lately enjoying dinner at the table because I feel like we never do it because we're so busy. But I wish I could participate. Mm -hmm. I wish I could eat. Um, but can I interject and say that I really think that you were good at that? Like before you had ALS, like I think one of the great things, one of the things I first loved about you was how how much you appreciated everyday things. I always used to say like you knew you were just like your mom in this way, that you made an everyday thing seem like this special, amazing event. And so, I mean, the parts about really appreciating what your physical body can do, I certainly understand that. But I really feel like you were always really good at appreciating those things and, and a good meal. I know you always appreciated that. And then after you were diagnosed, I think we did a really good job of saying like, we're going to buy the good beer. We're going to buy the good steak. We're going to eat all the good food we can for as long as we can, you know, with the idea that someday you might not be able to. So I think you're selling yourself a bit short there and saying that that is something that you didn't know before. I appreciate that. And that, as I listen to you, that's that's true. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just uh, thinking about how much we as people take for granted. Oh, yeah. And it really is amazing that the human body just goes through life and oh. you can smoke, you can drink, you can not exercise, and it pretty much still works. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> since you've been diagnosed, since you lost the use of your hand, I, I, I see people, you know, elderly people and I'm like but their hands still work huh. how is it that it just still works <laughs> I, just think I, I thought about this I could really relate to the elderly yeah like I to sit down with someone who is 85 years old and actually a really interesting conversation because mm -hmm. I could relate to their fears mm -hmm. and relate to their physical declines yeah yeah, I just read that great book by Susan Cain, Bittersweet, and she talks about in there that, you know, a lot, all this research and anecdotal evidence s shows that as people get older, they are better at, a, at, you know, stopping to smell the roses and appreciating those small things that as we get closer to that mortality, that, that those things are more, you know, they're, they're richer and they're deeper and we can stop and, and take them in more and value them more. They bring us more joy. And I was like, oh, well, then I'm old. <laughs> Because I already feel that way. I mean, I am still going back to look at this photo I took a couple weeks ago. I was driving the kids to school and I was stopped at the stoplight just by our house. And it was a nice morning. And I looked in my rearview mirror and uh, Willa had her window down and her little hand was hanging out the window. And I like had my phone in my lap and I snapped a photo in my rearview mirror of it. And I just, that moment was just it was such it was such a little joyful moment for me and those things can sustain me now in a way that i don't think i understood then and so for me i think that that is definitely one of them is i i find and i hold on to those little sparks of joy in a more profound way than i used to um and i think i've just realized that i'm a much you know more capable uh stronger person than i would have ever given myself credit for being good question Doug of course I know Doug asked one more and this one is actually interesting because we have to answer it about each other so I'm going to go with one more Doug Scott question what is something you each have been amazed by in each other that you didn't see pre-diagnosis well I think that experiences like this like they say that it doesn't Build character and reveals character. Mm. And what's been revealed to me is just how deep your instincts are to 
to care for, to protect at all costs, that there's nothing more important to you than the physical and emotional well-being of your two kids and me. And the way that you attack problems that I have, be they real or just psychologically imagined, is so selfless and so thorough. Audafi is good at that. Audafi is laser-focused and all-in to fixing that as you are. And I consider myself a caring person, but you take that to a different level. Thank you. You know, when Doug first asked this question, I read it and I, I thought about it a little bit. And I think one of the best things about my love for you is that I've always believed in the best version of you, whether you're showing Thank it or not. Goodness. <laughs> that has sustained us. And I really have, I mean, I have always really just like completely believed in you, uh, have all the faith in the world in you. And, you know, I remember very vividly the day when you said like, oh, I can't leave you guys. I'm not going to do that despite knowing what we knew about your family history and what we had lost in your family. And, you know, I thought, okay, Chris will figure it out. He'll find a way, you know, and we feel very lucky that the universe and modern medicine <laughs> met us in the place that it did. Um, but I'm, constantly amazed at your capacity to keep trying to be better than you were the day before you are you never kind of sit down and say well this is good enough like i have all these things that are hard in my life and so i'm done like i'm done trying to improve myself i'm done trying to reckon with parts of myself that before als i didn't necessarily love i'm i'm good like I've got enough things and this is who I am and if you don't like it, so be it. And you haven't done that. You're still always trying to evolve and grow. And um, I think that that is incredibly admirable. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, let's see. Oh, this was a nice message from Katie Burke. She said, I would love to know how people can best show up for you and your family. You give so much of your journey to so many people, and I would love to know how we can best support you both. Right there. Yeah. She just did. Exactly. Exactly. I think that I've said this so many times. I've said it on the podcast. I say it all the time, so sorry for saying it again. But the support of people who, like, I'm sure I've met Katie once or twice in the impact, you know, in the, in the course of our hockey lives, but the, the support of people who we don't see on an everyday basis is, is surprisingly important and valuable to me. What I really appreciate is when people tell me in the context of ALS and my situation what they're thinking, how they feel, mm -hmm. um, providing feedback. So if someone sits down like at baseball the other day and starts talking to me and says, hey, you look great, or asks a meaningful question, I find that that connection uh, really is rewarding. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of people are afraid to ask mm -hmm. anything. Or say anything. Mm -hmm. Which is a natural human reaction to something that is not right. Mm -hmm. So something that is painful, scary. Yeah. Uh, and so to act like it doesn't exist is most comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. But to, to say things, to ask things, because we're open. We're out there. Mm -hmm. Um. I appreciate that. And honestly, it makes you feel more at ease mm -hmm. 
because I continue to have uh, anxiety and uh, just, I guess, a heightened, significantly heightened sense of like self-awareness of how I look and how I sound. Mm-hmm. Even though I look and sound pretty good, all things considered. Yes, what do I always say to you? You look pretty good for a dead cow. <laughs> Everyone else expects you to be dead. <laughs> so I guess the, the short answer to this is just any interaction that reflects investment in our mm-hmm. lives is all you want. Yeah, just be genuine, right? Like just be genuine and that goes a long way and, and just saying, hey, we're here, we support you, we love you guys, we got your back, like we're thinking about you, all of those things. Saying something is just better than saying nothing all the time, right? And, you know, I think it's important too to be able to talk about the the differences in Chris's body and say, well, this is why this is happening. You know, if we're here to raise awareness of this disease, we're also here to raise awareness of, hey, not everybody has the same, people have different challenges in life. And it's important for I always say it's important for kids, you know, when Chris is in the locker room and he's a grown man ties his skates for him. These are conversation starters for kids to see that, you know, not every, not everything is, is the same for everybody and, and people have different struggles. And, you know, um, going back to the TikTok thing, a lot of people, when I post videos of you, why is his arm like that? Why is his lip like that? What's, you know, I don't mind answering those questions. I'd rather, you know, than and ask, than stare and whisper, right? I don't know how you feel about it. It's your face and your body. Mm-hmm. No one stares except for like eight to ten old kids. <laughs> yeah. All the kids were around <laughs> basically all the time. Here's a hockey question for you. Uh-oh. My question for Chris is managing a pro sports team means you're always on the emotional roller coaster. Do the ups lift you in your battle and do the downs compound things? Or has the whole experience put a whole different perspective on professional and personal matters? Great question, Ian. It sure is. I don't think that the downs compound things. I do think that what I derive is energy from the team, from the environment from the people I work with. And never was that more the case than the end of Game 7 this year, first round against Dallas. And gosh, it was such a difficult game to watch because our team this year was really good. And this is my 15th year in the league. And I felt like this was, without question, my best chance to win something. And that game felt like it was lost four or five different times in overtime. And I'm watching these sequences unfold and thinking, okay, you can deal with this. This fuck's going in. And then our goal to make a save. And when we scored, and I get chills just talking about it, when we scored in overtime, when Johnny Kudrow scored, the euphoria of that moment and us just vibrating and jumping and hugging each other in the box and going downstairs to the dressing room and doing more of the same. I said to you that night, I don't know if you've ever felt more alive than the energy that coursed through me that night. And that's like, who gets that at their job? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so to, to have that potential um, on a given night, is uh, that's incredible. And I say so much that I'm so fortunate that the skill set that my job requires and the limited concessions that I've made there that have been accommodated, um, most jobs I couldn't do. I couldn't teach class all day. Couldn't find an instrument. Couldn't work at a kitchen at a restaurant. Couldn't be a server. And on and on and on. And so I feel so fortunate that my job requires really my mind, my use of the computer, and to an extent talking. And so I, I, I daily think about the gratitude I have for that. Yeah. You the last show I had as a writer. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I could do that. No, no, you can't type faster. Not the pace of interviews and post-games and 
asking questions and something like that. And but that was that was a physically demanding pace job. Oh yeah, travel and all that. And my job now is demands of pace, but largely I can set those mm-hmm. and they're largely unaffected by the changes I've had. Mm-hmm. For both me and for you, what is the one lasting piece of advice or a quality that you want your children to carry with them forever? I have two boys that are eight and six, and I always think and struggle with, quote, when my wife and I are no longer here, what do I want to be sure I've instilled in them? The thing that comes to mind instantly is you can do anything, meaning you can take on any challenge. And I go back to the day at Fenway Fire class here when our kids and I threw out the first hitch and they had zero fear on that stage. And I thought that to Cole and after he threw his pitch and it was a strike. And so Cole looked around and anytime you feel nervous in your life, remember on your 10th birthday, you did this, mm-hmm. you did that. And I think that the strength that they're building due to my condition, the experiences, the, the crazy public experience that they've had, live national television, mm-hmm. Fenway Park, this year going to the Stanley Cup Finals and presenting an award on live television, they will be stronger for this. And even there now, I don't think daughter necessarily tells us all of the big thoughts that swirl through her head. Yeah. Just asking Cohen tonight, do you worry about dad's illness? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was hard to get anything. No, I don't either. I said, we were doing our thing at dinner where we do like, what was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? And and my worst part, I said, I was just, I was a little sad today. And and they both said, oh, why were you sad? And I said, oh, sometimes I just feel sad about the things dad can't do and that he has ALS and um, just sometimes I feel sad. I said, do you ever feel sad that, about dad's ALS? And Colin said, no, not really. And then he squeezed my good arm. Did he? And he often, Colin is so compassionate to that way. Mm. And he often will trace a line from my withered right arm off of my shoulders down my left arm and say, all the strength came out of here and went into there. Ugh. Catch your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one quick cute story about the kids, uh, the first pitch. The day before we did that, we were on the boat and Cohen was kind of quiet and looked a little anxious. And I said, what's going on, bud? Oh, I'm, I'm nervous. Oh, what are you nervous about? I'm nervous about the first pitch. I'm, I'm worried it's going to be really bad and I'm going to be on misplays of the month. <laughs> 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 I said, they're not going to put a 10-year-old on misplays of the month. And he's like, I've seen them put kids on there before. <laughs> he was very nervous. <laughs> but I think it, it calmed down by the next day. And he, he did not end up on misplays of the month, to say the least. <laughs> and what is your one thing? Yeah. I think that I really want the kids to believe like uh, as a core belief in their lives uh you know what victor frankel wrote that and taught that we we cannot control what happens to us but we can control how we respond to it and i hope that when they're older and i've said before that this is one of the reasons why we do this podcast thing and we do the blogging and we do the fundraising and we do the tv things like i want to give them a story to look back on and I'm not saying we get it all right because we absolutely don't get it all right. And sometimes I think, oh, maybe they're too exposed and maybe this is too much for them or whatever. Um, but I hope that they can look back and say, look what mom and dad did. Like the hard, one of the hardest things that could have happened to them happened. And this is how they helped us through it. And this is what they showed that is possible when something horrible happens. 
And I hope that they can look back to and say, even in those times that were so hard, you know, they saw the beauty in life and they found the joy and we still laughed and we still did fun things and we still made all these great memories. You know, I hope that they can accept sadness and that their sadness sharpens their joy. Yeah, I think that's mine. All right, let's see. What else we got here? All right, last question. You seem to have such a strong relationship. Us? <laughs> yeah, you and me. That's oh, the question. You and me. Someone's saying. And the question is marriage tips? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you forget me tips. Yeah, I probably I should make a list. <laughs> I think that the most important thing is you have to be best friends. And there's no one rather talk to. No one I trust more. Like, you don't necessarily think that I trust you all the time, but increasingly so, I am so confident that anything I give to you or ask of you, you'll do exceedingly well. And that is anything from parenting that things are the house to anything. And it's such a comforting thing to have that degree of belief and trust in each other. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think marriage is very hard. I think marriage is very hard, whether you are sick or (laughs) whether someone is sick or whether everyone is healthy. Um, and I think it's just really a decision of being in it and staying in it and being committed and not giving up. And, you know, this is what's worked for us. There are moments that we all have in our marriage where, you know, you go to bed and you're mad and you think I'm never going to not be mad at him. I'm going to be mad at him forever. (laughs) I'm married to him forever and mad at him forever. (laughs) (laughs) I am stuck. (laughs) I think both of us have this perspective that we refuse to fail at anything. And that includes each other. Yeah. And so there's this sense of whether this was after I got sick or prior to, oh, maybe this is someone else, or maybe this is going to work, or like that is not an option to us. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking about our text recently because. You know, I think that you've had some anxiety lately about, you know, like like you sh- like you always do about what's to come, and that sort of unknown. And you know, I think I take very um, seriously my responsibility and my job and my role in saying, like, I don't know what that looks like, but I'm here. Every step of the way, every loss, if it comes. I'm here. You know, that's what I signed up for. And I I think that having that level of a full commitment to to love and to a relationship, you know, and as it changes over time because certainly our relationship has changed. And I know that it, you know, it's certainly been tested, but it's not been tested as as much as it could be possibly in the future. You know, but I believe in that. I believe in that foundation of just being so wholeheartedly committed to to this and to you. I'm very glad to be stuck with you. Me too. <laughs> thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for doing this. Now I'm going to sign off for the summer. Yes, can I have the summer off too, please? Yes, you can have the summer off too. I think everyone's probably tired of listening to you talk. There's like, you probably have said all you have to say. So all I do is talk, talk, talk. Talk, talk, talk. <laughs> All right, it's 11 o'clock. Time for bed. Love you, sweetheart. Love you. The first summer after Chris's diagnosis, we told the kids we were going to have a summer to last a lifetime because we thought, truly, that in their hearts and minds, it would have to, that it would be our last summer as a family of four with a dad who could walk and talk and eat and breathe. But here we are, entering our fourth summer since Chris's diagnosis, 
and we are still working to fill these precious months with love and laughter and core memories that our kids will carry with them forever. Earlier this week, I tweeted, This week is three years since a neurologist told us Chris is in the early stages of ALS. He said patients with Chris's type of ALS live 6 to 12 months, that we should go do what brings you joy. Turns out Chris being alive is what brings us joy. So the plan is for him to stay that way. I'm so grateful for every single person that follows our story, that cares about us, that thinks of us, that listens to this podcast, that reads my blog, that reaches out. Lots of you ask what you can do. Here's something you can do. Make your summer one to last a lifetime. Spend it with the people you love, the people who love you. Make memories. Soak in all the life you can. Do what brings you joy. I hope you all have an excellent summer, and I will meet you back here in September with more stories about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. One more reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and want to support my work, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. For the monthly cost of one latte, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Thanks, as always, for listening. Just right.